Welcome to If You Only Knew, brought to you by the Diversity Movement, where Dr. Debbie Stroman talks race and diversity in sports with some of the most influential leaders at the intersection of athletics and racial equity. On today's episode, Dr. Debbie is joined by Derek Wittenberg. He's a former NC State basketball player, and currently he's the Associate Athletic Director for Community Relations and Student Support. Today, they're talking about what he's doing to be a resource for student athletes and what they need. Here's your host, UNC professor, entrepreneur, speaker, consultant, and advocate, Dr. Debbie Stroman. Welcome to If You Only Knew with Dr. Debbie Stroman, and I'm excited to be joined by a very good friend, Derek Wittenberg. Some of you might remember him if you are close to college basketball. You know him as one of the star players for the NC State National Championship team in 1983. But he's also the Associate Athletic Director for Community Relations and Student Support at NC State. Welcome, Derek. Well, thank you. And thank you for the nice introduction. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, national champion, business leader for your alma mater, entrepreneur, philanthropist. Tell us where it all started. What brought you to sports at a young age? Did you have any role models in your family or your, or your neighborhood? Well, my, my first role model, really my parents. I had two great parents that both of them are no longer with us, Don and Lillian Wittenberg, who provided a great environment at home. Very positive, very good role models, and wanted the best for us. And sometimes we forget about when you talk about, when you sent me that question about where it all started, it starts at home. And I can't thank my parents enough providing all the love and support, and then also providing those opportunities. When I start off in the boys club, you, know, you have to pay your $25 dues or buy the uniform, buy your tennis shoes. We took all that for granted, Debbie, growing up. That was a big deal for parents to invest that kind of money in, into a young person's uh, sports career, whether it's a young lady, a young man. So we kind of took those little essential things that families back then, it was a big sacrifice. Now, did you have any sport highlights? Not college, but still as a youngster, any or any do-overs, things that you remember in terms of your sport career? I have a really good memory. On the 95-pound football team, I got in an argument with a coach, another player, that I wanted to be the punter. I was already playing all three positions and I won the punt and I thought I won this punting competition and I said a bad word. i never mm -hmm. forget it. said a curse word and Coach Brown heard me say that. He suspended me for the whole year. And I'm going to tell you something. That was the most painful thing that I ever experienced. Absolutely. But, but it taught me a lesson. The first thing is that you respect your coach and you respect authority. And also the message is that no matter how good you are, mm. that nobody is above the law, above the fray. And that's what he showed up. So everybody else felt alive because I was clearly one of the best. At, now, mind you, I was younger, those guys, but because of my weight and size, I had to play 95 pounds. 
So I was playing with older guys. I love it. I love it. I was playing with older guys. And that, should, that was a big lesson. So nobody else ever said a bad word. But I said, mm-hmm. if, you can, if you can suspend this school, you can suspend Whitbury, you can suspend any of us. Mm-hmm. And it really cost us the season. But I thank Mr. Brown because he really taught all of us a lesson by, no, he didn't budge. I mean, there was no profanity and he was a disciplinarian. And uh, that's what we that's what we enjoyed about him. Wow, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. That is yeah. so powerful, and especially at an early age. And, now, and nobody's ever asked me that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not going to forget it because that is a that's a really, really big lesson to learn. Yeah. So you are definitely one of those Renaissance men. You do so many wonderful things. I want to talk a little bit about your work in film. How did you get involved with that? And what's your latest project? Well, believe it or not, it was uh, 2010. And I just started working at ESPN. I actually, good fortune, bad fortune, right? So I was fired as a coach at Fordham University, in which I had the, one of the best seasons they've ever had. Uh, in 2005, we won 18 games, won 10 games in the league and Atlantic 10 wonderful year and then two years later I'm fired and I'm sitting around and I was watching the Fab Five the great story about the Michigan players and I was watching that and I said you know what we need to do the story on the 83 team so I called my friend Jonathan Hawk I'm working for ESPN and I said what do you think about this so we put together a treatment we presented to ESPN and then three years actually a year later we got to go ahead to do the film and just really, that's just how I got started. I was ignited by something that appears to be bad because mm-hmm. if you get fired, everybody thinks that's the end of the world. And so if I wouldn't have got fired, I wouldn't have been involved in producing the most watched sports documentary in the world. And 68 million people watched it last Christmas. And if I was still coaching, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to do the film. And the film has meant more to more people than me coaching any team. The lessons that they learned from that journey, that, that those group of ordinary kids from NC State in a uh, flashy, uh, flamboyant, excited personality coach like Jim Balvano as our leader, it was an incredible journey and an incredible story. I don't know if I, I ever told you this, but I actually uh, knew Coach when I was a youngster. And so one of the uh, camps that I would go to up in the summer back home in Pennsylvania was up in the Poconos. He would come in and he had a little skateboard with a a stuffed rat on it. And he would walk around the camp pulling that saying, be a rat, as in being the hustler, you know, the kid that would never give up, you know, have play with passion. He would give these very motivational speeches and everybody's like, there's coach Valvano, you know, all the kids. And then lo and behold, I end up in the triangle and then, you know, he's at NC State. So just an amazing, amazing man. Amazing personality, a man that loved life and came here to NC State with a mission to win the national championship. And um, he accomplished that, but he accomplished much more because before he passed, obviously starting the Jimmy V Foundation for Cancer Research. But he just had a magnetic personality and a way about him. And I can't tell you uh, uh, how much 
he meant to our university and to the state of North Carolina of, of just his vision about him coming here and winning a national championship. And the way we did it, he was the guy. He was the guy that orchestrated the whole thing and gave us the confidence. You know, I talk about it all the time. Valvano was transparent. He told us the truth, and therefore we trusted him. And that's what we all seek to have today. We don't have enough transparency. We don't have enough truth. Therefore, there will never be any trust. But Amen. we have, and we're going to go there on that. We're going to yeah, talk no, more about that. Tell no, me, our, do you have another so our, project going on with film? Yes, uh, we're working on Jonathan Hawk and I, who did two films, two 30 for 30s for ESPN. We did Survive in Advance and The Gospel According to Mac. This is going to be our third project together, a 10-part series on the history of the ACC tournament on the men's side. And I think it's going to be one heck of a project starting in the 50s, in the 60s, in the uh, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, present day. Uh, wonderful project. I'm so excited. The interviews are off the chart. Yeah. I mean, interviewing Lenny Rosenblum, mm. Charlie Scott, Phil Ford, you know, David Thompson. Well, I'm hoping so, it's going to be a series because that's a lot of star power ten, in all those ten years. Part, ten part series, an hour in each episode. Very powerful stuff. Now tell me great. about your role in the athletic department. Wow. What, 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 what is it that I won't do? <laughs> <laughs> well, that speaks to your spirit and it also speaks to the need of what young people need today. <laughs> well, I came back to NC State 2013. I was uh, player development for Coach Godfrey for two years. Uh, then uh, Debbie Yao and Chancellor Woodson presented me with a position to be in the athletic department. It, it couldn't have been a better position that fits me and fits NC State. I've been involved with mentoring student-athletes, getting kids back to school, speaking to schools, speaking to teams, being involved in recruiting, and now more being involved in fundraising. For me, it, it was a calling. It wasn't a job for me. It was a calling. And so it's my school, and it gives me an opportunity to come back. I'm probably one of the, I, I don't know this for sure, but I'm one of the first athletes to have conducted the commencement speech for computer science in 2016. But I'm back in my element and where that I can give back. You know, I can give back a certain amount of finance, but it's nothing more about giving back your hard on time and effort and, and spending time with these kids and showing them the way, right? Because you got to teach them about how to be successful here, but you also got to give them guidance for once they leave here. Mm -hmm. And so I think that uh, me being a mentor and being available for all of our young people here and not just in the athletic department, I'm on the Af African-American male initiative on the campus and helping kids there. So I've been allowed to really be involved in the university in so many different ways. You know, I spoke to the, the anniversary of the 50-year anniversary of our alumni, and mm -hmm. which was was great. I mean, most of those people that went to school here, I wasn't even born. Right. <laughs> yeah, but it, what an exciting opportunity that was to tell them by my story and how we appreciate them being the pioneers and coming to NC State and, and getting things off to a great start. So 
Like I told somebody before, since 1979, when I arrived on campus, five presidents, five ADs, five decades of NC State history. It's hard to get around me. (laughs) That's great. I love the way you weave that. And certainly, you know, the type of work that is needed on our college campuses and such, especially at a prestigious school like NC State, you know, a lot of young people in our state and around the world want to attend and then to be able to have a resource like you, a source like you. Um, well, Debbie, Debbie, the work that we do, it, it's is working in silence, right? Mm-hmm. Because what people don't visualize is the mentoring and behind the scenes work. There's so much work that we do. All those conversations that mm-hmm. we have with individuals when nobody else is around. When a young man or a teacher or a staff member, somebody's going through a tough time and they reach out to you. Well, I go to a hospital and, and visit people at Duke and Rex and all the other hospitals. When I go visit people in hospice, people don't see that kind of work that we do. Yes. And see, to me, that's when you found your purpose, right? Mm-hmm. What your purpose in life is to serve. And that's what we do. So we work in silence. Thank you for that. You said that so well, so well. I'm Shelley Willingham, Vice President of Business Strategy for the Diversity Movement. And on this segment, we're sharing a quick story of a Black athlete or leader who has paved the way for so many others. At the Diversity Movement, we want you to pave the way as well for your company to excel in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Today's barrier breaker is Maya Moore, one of the most heralded women's basketball players in collegiate history at the University of Connecticut, a four-time WNBA champion and 2012 and 2016 Olympian is now recognized as one of the more recent great champions for justice. Her February 2019 decision to put her basketball career on hold while in her prime to be an activist for a wrongful conviction was a very risky move, yet Moore felt a spiritual calling to walk the talk. Her journey of advocacy was rewarded with the overturning of the conviction of Jonathan Irons last July. Moore continues to break barriers by focusing on voting rights. So important, and thank you for all you do, Maya Moore. If you're looking for your company, organization, or higher education institution to break through your DEI barriers, we want to hear from you. Visit our website at thediversitymovement.com or click the link in the show notes. Now, I want to thank you for being a part of my Basketball Analytics Summit. We had so many speakers sharing their tips, sharing their insights. But one point, though, I'm getting more and more frustrated when people say analytics has no place in sports. Comments like, you can't measure heart. Well, I've shifted to you actually can. We call them hustle stats. And I think you were a big part of this. Everything from drawn charges, deflections, loose balls recovered. So what do I and others have to do to get the OG on board? As in, it is numbers do matter. Or is it just hopeless? Should I just give up? So are you you buying basketball analytics or selling? (laughs) Well, I I buy it in terms of how you use it, okay? So you can take the statistics of all those attributes or individual things that somebody has done but what what a coach says and also when he about measures heart 
you know, that gives you some results of what they've done. But it's hard to measure that guy in his passion, how competitive he is. It, it's a result of that. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's how you use that. I mean, my teammates and North Carolina's teammates can attest to how competitive Michael Jordan was, right? right? Mm-hmm. Your teammates, not mm-hmm. the statistics. Mm-hmm. And I saw an interview with Michael when he said, he challenged the coach. He says, I want to be the best that ever came to UNC. That's right. I didn't know Michael said that. Nobody knows he said that. Mm-hmm. That's not analytics. That was an interview that he said. Now, the results of that, when you see him and, and when he's playing and you start measuring, wow, okay, yeah, he is. Now you evaluate through the efforts and what the finished product what you see but what we know off the court that michael jordan will race you to the parking lot to his car and he's trying to win that's right he's one me and him are probably two of the most competitive individuals on the planet me him and michael jordan larry bird magic johnson we are in a category called predators (laughs) and predators eat competitors compete 24 hours a day we compete at practice we compete on checkers we compete at golf we compete walking the street we compete who can buy the most ice cream at the mall we compete 24 hours a day now when do you rest there's no time to rest you have plenty of time to rest when you go to heaven okay plenty Mm -hmm. of time to rest but until then while you're on this earth you have to serve there's no time for rest. So we are in a category, and you, I don't, I haven't did the analytics on you <laughs> if you are a predator, but there's a big difference between a predator and a competitor. I'm Remember writing that, that down. I'm going to quote you on that. Right? I would that say down. that I'm a competitor, but my friends will probably say I'm a predator. Even you when we play credit. board games, games, I'm already calculating, okay, how do we play this game? What's my scheme? And my friend's like, gosh, Debbie, can you kind of chill? Yeah, that's right. That's right. I play cards. I play bid whist. I play spades. I play pinochle. I checkers, chess. There's not a game bocce. It's not a game that I don't want to play. And if I haven't played the game badminton, I will play you. And if you beat me, you can't get rid of me. We're going to play until I win. <laughs> oh, my. That is great. That's great. Now, let's discuss, let's discuss our common interests, inclusion and belonging in sports and mm-hmm. on the college campus. Now, I found that there are people who are passionate and even have the skills to help young people make good decisions. And yet there's a roadblock or many roadblocks to actually help them. So let's talk about what are these barriers that need to be removed? And I'm talking anything from the way parents show up to the coaches, the players themselves, athletic leadership, or the posse or the support team, the people that grow around elite athletes. So what is going on when we talk about inclusion and belonging with helping young people? Well, it's, it's, it's a broad subject, right? So college is this ideal world in which students come here and they come to college because obviously they want to get a great education. They want to be obviously better. 
a person once they leave this college experience. And hopefully they want to compete and win a championship and do the best they can at a school. Beyond that, what's added today with the social injustice and also with the adults is with the numbers. Diversity inclusion is about numbers. Social injustice is about education. And so we have two different things going on. And somebody said, we had a unity walk the other day. And the way I looked at it today, the unity walk and PAC United and all those organizations, that is to me, I commend our students for taking on that stand and finding their freedom of speech, okay? To me, that's their fight. On the adult side, we are concentrated on the numbers. Mm. You know, we have one African-American coach at NC State. I think Carolina, I think you just, you have one now or maybe two. I don't know how many Virginia has. And then we have out of 350 total people in the athletic department, there's about 30 African-American males and women, okay? So like the numbers is what we look at. So I give you a case in point. I've been in, now you've been in this space longer than I have. But in 1987, I was part of the Black Coaches Association in which Harry Edwards and the late John Thompson was involved with 12 others. Mm. And back in 1987, there was only seven head coaches of color. And so we were fighting. The fight was guys like us going to get an opportunity not just to get hired. Were we going to have an opportunity to be interviewed? They weren't even interviewing Black coaches back then. So our fight for the adults was the numbers to have more opportunities for coaches. And the fight continues. This year, nobody talks about it. Out of 68 positions this year, for the first time, 18 African-American coaches were hired. That's right. I haven't heard the media talk about it. I haven't heard ESPN. Nobody talks about it. Mm-hmm. 18, which is the largest ever. It's sad that we have to talk about it right? Because it shows that we are still so far behind and we're still challenged with this. And this speaks to athletic leadership. Starting from the top, if we look at our largest league, which is the NCAA for college sports, right? It starts at the top and then it starts at the top of our universities. And then we can talk about all the other feeders, right? Who are sustaining the system, who feel like, oh, not me. I won't hire anybody who's qualified, right? But it's just baked into the fabric of how the system was built. And the challenge is people hire people that they know and they feel comfortable with. That's right. And then some of the spaces, they don't know a lot of minorities. They haven't had relationships. They haven't dealt with it. Not the mere fact that they won't, but like our chancellor, when he had about five cabinet positions open this year. Randy Woodson, he hired four young ladies of color in those positions. That was intentional, right? Yeah. Has and to he be. doesn't get enough credit for that because there's so many other things that we probably need more areas to work in. But to me, he was intentional in trying to improve in that area. And I, I give him kudos for that. But there's other things and you know, the university is big, so you can't do everything. But so at least he's shown that he's intentional about it, improving in that area. And I think now with the education and what's going on, 
there's some strides, not change, mm. strides, in my opinion, that we're making strides with the education, with the awareness, and whether or not we can get people who are making decisions at the top to be more intentional, to be more diverse. diverse. We're talking about courage. Now you mentioned Dr. Woodson, but there are some role models out there. It's, I know you've been one who've been telling the story about head coach Wes Moore, right? For women's basketball, him kneeling with the women's team. I've had a wonderful conversation with coach Mac Brown at Carolina football. So what makes these white men unique or so courageous? What are they doing or what are they, what, what are they drinking that others aren't drinking? Well, it's sad in a lot of sense that we have to go there and say that Westmore, a white man, that they did something that it was the right thing to do, right? To support yeah. athletes. Yeah. So they get questioned on two sides. There was many people of color that questioned that, well, he, he did that because he wanted the girls to play for him. I had some to say, well, I'm sure he got some flack on the other side that white people probably said that didn't like what he did, right? Mm -hmm. You know, he yeah. was in a very tough situation. So I commend him because he didn't have to do it. And it was sad that he got a lot of attention because he was a white coach, coaching a lot of African-American ladies. And during the time, you know, it was on you. Like a lot of people wasn't doing that. They just wasn't. So uh, to me, and especially I also his age, right? He's not yeah. like he's a 30 year old coach. And this is all I know. We're talking about white men in their 50s, 60s and 70s being courageous in this space. Yeah, they, they're courageous, but I think that they don't have to do it. Right. Right. They don't have to do it because they want to get the, everybody to play. It, it's a tremendous risk for them in terms of if they do it, what others are gonna think about them. So I don't think, I don't think they were unafraid and I don't think they were worried about that. And I just thought it was a big deal for Coach West who did that during this time because, you know, sometimes you're doing the right thing and a lot of people don't agree with you even when you're doing the right thing. You know, just like Calvinette, you know, it's it all started with Calvinette kneeling. <laughs> this all started with him kneeling. Mm -hmm. And he asked his friend who was a who was in the military. He said, I want to make a protest because I want to do something about all this police brutality and what's happened. And his friend told him, well, if you want to show some honor, you should kneel. Mm -hmm. Now, Deborah, let's think about kneeling. We go to church and they ask you to come to the altar call and you kneel at the church. When you want to get married to your lady and your loved one, what you do? You mm -hmm. kneel. All of a sudden, kneeling is this terrible thing. <laughs> well, again, that's how this gets spun and how it creates division. What do you think about, you know, athletes today trying to find some type of connection with a person, whether they're a professor, whether they're an administrator, whether they're a staff member, to find that support on campus. You know, because oftentimes, especially when we're looking at historically white colleges and universities, there aren't many of us on campus. And so how can we assist them and help them to find us? Well, this is interesting about athletes. 
it's almost because of the demands of time and the way it's set up that the athletes are over here and they end up taking classes over here, but they're not intertwined with the campus community. That's right. Because and that's, that's by design. The interest of time. That's right. that, yeah. By design, because we got all these facilities and they got all the amenities that they really don't have to leave that area, right? Mm -hmm. So when we went to school, man, you had to hang out on campus. That was a place to hang out. Mm -hmm. Nobody's on campus no more. Mm -hmm. Everybody's like out here. They have apartments and, and, and I mean, they don't live on campus anymore. Mm -hmm. So they come there, take their classes. And as they take their classes, where they study, where they eat, everything they do is in an athletic environment. They don't have the opportunity to be involved in the campus stuff. Very, it's very important. few of them. That's important because I think back to my career as well, where the activities, the happenings, you didn't want to miss the different functions that was all on campus or as we say, the grounds. But you're right, due to the demands of the sport, due to the way the universities have spread out, due to you don't want your athletes to be harmed in any way. So then you're moving them away from uh, what could potentially be a problem, but it all lends itself to, we're taking away from that 17 to 22 year olds experience as a young person at college. And so they're missing this opportunity for really, really, I guess you could say socialization and just development as a young person. Well, we have a student center that's four stories now, a lot, lot bigger than when I was mm -hmm. there. We had this little brick building. I bet you most of our kids don't even know where it is. Yeah. Because they, they don't never have to go hang out there. They never, they don't go in the student center and play cards like we did. That's right. Well, that is the nature of the commercialization. The train has already gone down the track. So I don't know if we could ever stop the train, but certainly, or derail the train but we need to make more stops along the way so we can check in, see how people are doing, uh, bring in the mental health aspect. That's a whole nother subject in terms of wellness of our athletes. Let's talk a little bit about coaches and their responsibility around social justice, around making sure we have inclusion. In fact, I can even bring in the gender. We're seeing more at the pro leagues, but seeing women being able to coach young men and men in their sports. Uh, do we think we'll ever see more change in that direction or let's just say a faster change? There's some strides in those areas. And I think that there's more opportunities. Just you saw it just with the women's tournament, we had two African-American uh, coaches that were in the final four. Mm -hmm. And uh, Stanley Dawn is, she's unbelievable. I mean, she is like, she's the, John Thompson in women's sports. That's right. And she is unafraid and unapologetic about, you know, her support of more minorities in the sport. And I, I just, I love her to death. I mean, she's, she thinks about others. Yeah. And, uh, and, I, and I, I admire her that, and that's, that area is getting better. It needs to continue to get better. And I think the NBA is doing a better job. I'm not sure if we're at one time we might see, uh, a young lady coaching NBA team, but uh, to well, our we've point, have one of the coaches who've done the G League, but not at the NBA level yet. Not, not mm -hmm. at the NBA level yet. So, mm -hmm. never know. Billionaire owners can hire whoever they want. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. so one day there's there's going to be 
will we still be alive? I don't know, but one day it's going to happen. Yes. It, it's going to happen. And I'm hope I'm around to see it, but I think we made in strides. Always be cautious, cautiously optimistic because there's a, such a big difference between change and strides. Mm. I'm playing with that because I'm saying what's change is something as change is dramatic, right? Yes. Strides are just, we taking steps, right? Mm-hmm. That's why they call it strides. Mm-hmm. We may not get to this change just yet, mm-hmm. but we got to continue to be making strides towards all in all these areas, diversity, social injustice, fairness, equality. We, we just got to continue to make strides in these areas. Yes. And that is true for all of us. You know, being a black woman all my life, I still recognize and acknowledge that I'm still a lifelong learner. And far too often we have people of color who think that because they majored in African-American studies or because they've been uh, brown or black all their life that they know it all. But I think this is a learning process for everybody in this space. Well, Debbie, you got to understand the work we've done doesn't have color to it. And what we do transcends race. That's right. But because of society, they make us bring race back into it because we haven't gotten it right yet. Mm-hmm. See, I've been in a situation when they see Derek Wittenberg and they show up and they says, oh, he's black. Yeah, I'm black. It's, wow. I, you, you know, when they hear the name Wittenberg, they don't know. Sometimes they hear me. They don't know if I'm black or white. Mm. You know, my, my fans don't look at me in NC State and I talk to a group of uh, coaches in, in Ireland, 250 coaches in Ireland, they didn't see me as black. They saw Derek Wittenberg, the national champion, and the guy was on the 30 for 30. So, but society has brought us back to say, because of what we're dealing with, we don't want to say our friends are black and white. We want to say Coach Westmore. We want to say Coach Matt. We want to say, we want to say Coach Wooten, Valvano. I don't want to say he's Italian. That that shouldn't matter. Mm-hmm. We got to be doing work that transcends that. Let's get to what we have to accomplish as opposed to always dealing with the race part of it. Well, we it should- goes back to what you said earlier, though. Social justice, this type of work is around educating people. We yes. have to educate people. If people knew the true history, if people understood how we got to where we are today, we wouldn't have to do this. But sadly, we have labels, we have ways of, like you said, diversions, distractions, all of that. And, you know, it's going to take people like yourself to continue to call people in versus call people out, right? We got to call people in in different ways, whether you use your philanthropist side with your foundation, whether you use your film work, whether people want to always remember you as Derek Wittenberg, you know, the champion, whatever it takes, we can, whatever tools we can use to draw people in. Absolutely. And being on your podcast is certainly a one more tool to use and one way to what we can make strides on getting the message out. So I hope people are looking at all your work not just our interview, but all the interviews that you're providing is part of education. You know, one of the reasons why our young kids are lost is because we don't provide enough history for them. Mm-hmm. I always talk to them about in order to enhance your destiny, 
You must embrace your history. Know where you came from so you can understand the purpose of where you're going. If you don't know all the great players that play for you and pay homage to that, how are you going to get to your mission, right? Mm -hmm. If you don't know, if I didn't know about 74 and David Thompson and Monty Tao and, and Bertelson, how was I to, what did I have to shoot for? That's right. They were there, they're the pioneers, the Norm Sloan, they were the guys that set the tone. If I didn't know who Al Hartley was, our first black scholarship player, you know, I, I mean, I've, I've embraced our history. Well, that's and the foundation. It's the foundation, but these young kids think that, you know, it's like touching a phone. It's just going to happen. I, I'm going to be an All-American. I'm going to go in the NFL. If I touch this button, I'm going to NBA. I'm going to put myself in a mock draft. Mm. Enjoy the journey. Yes. And the experience of all the things you can take advantage of while you're at the university. Because 99% of you are not going to the pros. And if you go, but, you're not going to stay there long. You're going to stay long. But you could be successful in your life. Yeah. So let's not let's not compromise who we are based on a ball or a stick or a glove, mm -hmm. right? There's more to life than that. I we are constantly, Debbie, you and I are trying to prove that we're more than that athlete that we were, right? Absolutely. That athlete is gone, right? But you know what? I haven't been sitting around with my jersey at number 25 and said I won the championship 38 years ago. I've actually been doing some stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let me tell you about it. <laughs> well, your journey has been amazing. And yeah. I want to ask you when it's all over and you're sitting back in your rocking chair, watching your favorite team, if you reflect back on your career, what do you want to be remembered for? I want to be remembered as somebody who was approachable, somebody who cared about people. And I want to be remembered as a guy that served. Very simple. I want to be known as Chris. That guy really cared about people and he was a servant while he was here on earth. That you do that very well. And we thank you for all that you do and what you did on the court and off the court and how you continue to nurture, educate, and inspire. Thank you, Derek Wittenberg. Thank you, Dr. Debbie Strong. I appreciate you. And you continue your great work. I want the checks. You keep the bait. It's been exhausting carrying the weight. It's been exhausting carrying the weight. Been accused of stealing the reviews. Thanks for listening to If You Only Knew with Dr. Debbie Stroman. I'd love for you to subscribe on your favorite podcast app, be it Apple or Spotify or another. It's also helpful if you would give us a five-star rating and review so we can continue these spotlights. My goal is to get to 100 subscribers and I can't get there without you. Please share this podcast with your friends and family and follow me on social media at drstroman. This show is a production of EarFluence and is brought to you by the Diversity Movement. Thanks for listening to If You Only Knew.
We dismiss the drama, talk about the drama, but there's more to come. Semicolon comma, the vultures are lurking. The